Good morning, Christ Prez. What a week it's been. A close, contentious, bitterly divisive and polarizing election. A pandemic that is out of control. Social unrest. Great uncertainty about what the coming months are going to look like. It's almost like we're living in the book of Revelation. It's like we're in the great tribulation. Well, remember, that's exactly where we are. That's where John and the first century Christian communities were, and it's where we continue to live today. Jesus said it in the most clear and straightforward way. In this world, you will have tribulation. Collectively, our world has been feeling it. In the weeks leading up to the election, our country has been experiencing it. And in all kinds of personal ways, we live with trouble in our own lives. What are we to do when we go through this kind of upheaval and confusion? When we experience this kind of trouble and tribulation? One of the things Revelation is wanting us to see in a variety of ways from a number of different angles is the true story we're a part of. In particular, it wants us to remember the end of the story, where we're headed, the vision of the future, the end, the goal. Where are we headed? What are we after? What's our ultimate hope? Well, verse 15 makes it clear. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There it is. That's the vision of the end that Revelation and the New Testament more broadly hold up for us, that Jesus the King would reclaim the world, gather the nations, banish evil, restore creation, and that he would rule forever and ever. Remember, it's not a vision of escape from this world to go off and be with God somewhere else. It's the fulfillment of what we pray for every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, that God's kingdom would come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is where we're headed, redeemed and renewed and recreated world in which God rules and reigns. Doesn't God already rule and reign, you might wonder? Well, yes, yes. Remember the vision of chapters four and five, God is already on the throne, ruling and reigning over his world, but his kingdom is always contested by the kingdom of the world. And you know this, you can see that even as far as your own life is concerned, there are ways in which you resist and rebel against God's rule over your life. Our personal lives and the lives of the nations are characterized now by this clash of kingdoms. Who will rule? Revelation reminds us that there will come a day when the, king, when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. They won't be in conflict. They'll be one and the same. And that kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. Christ will reign forever and ever. And that's why I just, I keep telling us our hope is not in the outcome of this election. Our ruler is on the throne and he will reign forever and ever. But the question is, how do we get there? How does the kingdom come? What are we who know, know and follow Jesus supposed to do in the meantime? What's our role right now in the world? What's our responsibility when it comes to the kingdom of God? Well, before we look at our, how our passage answers that question, let's look at two general approaches that God's people have taken throughout the ages. The first way we might call the way of passive withdrawal. In the time of Jesus, there was a Jewish community known as the Essenes, 
that pursued this strategy. They believed that Jerusalem and the temple had become hopelessly corrupt. They didn't see how any actions they took could make any positive difference. And so they moved away from the city and they lived in caves where they could safely practice their intense devotion to God's law and patiently wait for God to intervene and establish his kingdom. There have been Christian movements through the ages that have pursued variations on this basic approach. They've seen the world as hopelessly corrupt and they've pursued a strategy of withdrawal so that they can focus on their own purity and faithfulness as they wait for the coming judgment. Now let's acknowledge that there's a certain appeal of this approach. In theory, at least, it allows Christians to create little pockets of light in a dark world. It doesn't spend energy trying to affect change in the broader society. It focuses on creating communities of faithfulness. And who knows, maybe those communities will be attractive to the watching world. But the problem with this approach, as I see it, is its uh, total inward focus. It just guts the church of its mission. And it can tend to create communities that are puritanical and legalistic. The way of passive withdrawal is not the church's calling as we seek first the kingdom of God. A second approach we might call the way of lion-like winning. And again, there were people in Jesus' community that pursued this approach in his day. The zealots, like the Essenes, longed to see God's kingdom come, but rather than withdrawing from the world and waiting, they pursued a plan to overthrow the Roman occupiers through a military uprising. They hoped that they could bring God's kingdom by the exercise of political and military might. They figured that since God's kingdom is a social and political reality, that they could use the power of the state and the sword to enact it, to bring it about. If they could only gain control, then the kingdom would come. History is full of Christian movements that have pursued the same basic strategy. We'll bring the kingdom through politics and the direct exercise of power. We'll bring the kingdom by gaining control. A neat trick if you can pull it off, but of course you can't, and really, we shouldn't want to. Whenever the church colludes with power, it becomes corrupted. It becomes a mirror image of what Revelation calls Babylon, the great city. It becomes characterized by idolatry and injustice, just like the system it was trying to change. The church might succeed in gaining all kinds of political power, but always, always, at the expense of its integrity, it ends up entirely compromised and usually indistinguishable from the world it was wanting to change. The way of lion-like winning is not the approach the church is called to pursue. Is there another approach? Is there a way for followers of Jesus to faithfully steward our responsibility for the kingdom of God? Yes, it's the approach that Revelation calls us to not passive withdrawal, not lion-like winning, but suffering witness. Let's turn to our passage to see how this is held up for us here. In chapter 10, we get this amazing vision of a mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He's carrying a little scroll, and I tend to think that this is the same scroll that we first saw in chapter 5. Now the seals have been broken, so the scroll is open. What's on it? Look at verses 6 and 7. There will be no more delay, but in the 
days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced, literally, just as he evangelized, just as he gospeled to his servants, the prophets. The scroll has been opened. The mystery of God's purposes have been revealed. And what is it? It's the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians, the mystery of, of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has, been, has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets, is this, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. See, this is the mystery of the scroll. God's purposes for the world, for the nations, have been fulfilled and made known. And what is it? The good news about Jesus. That Jesus Christ, God's own son, has taken the sin and rebellion of the world upon himself, has lived for us, died for us, been raised from the dead for us, and now God's family is opened wide to bring in the nations. This passage has strong connections with Acts chapter 1. There, remember, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's about to ascend to heaven, and he's spending a few final days with his disciples. They ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, even after all that Jesus has taught them, they're still thinking that Jesus is all about gaining and wielding political power. They're basically asking, hey, Jesus, now that you've defeated death, are you finally going to beat the Romans and give us the land back? And Jesus says, uh, no. But he continues, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus says, you are not going to be my kingdom builders. You're going to be my witnesses. You're not going to stay here and rule. You're going to go out into all the world and bear witness to me. We see, both in Acts chapter 1 and here in Revelation 10, that God is a missionary God. Jesus is a sending Savior. He doesn't just save his people. He sends us. He doesn't just love his people. He launches us into the world to be his witnesses. What is our role in this time of tribulation? Witness. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. This is our vocation, family. That giant rainbow angel invites John to take the scroll, to eat the scroll. And then in verse 11, to take this message and prophesy to the many peoples, nations, and languages, and kings. And in, in a way, that's our calling too, to take the scroll, the good news of Jesus, to take it into ourselves so that it transforms us, changes us, becomes who we are, and then to take it with us into the world. We are what we eat. As Eugene Peterson puts it, witnesses first become what they then say. See, this is your ultimate role beneath and behind all your other roles. This is your true vocation that shapes all your other jobs and responsibilities, whether you're a teacher, an engineer, a locksmith, a custodian, a software developer, a carpenter, a lawyer, or a stay-at-home mom, you are, beneath and behind all of that, a witness to Jesus Christ. You are one who is sent to point to Jesus and his inbreaking kingdom with your words and your deeds and your very lives. But we're not just called to be witnesses. We're called to be suffering witnesses. 
And this is so hard because I think in our heart of hearts, we want what the first disciples wanted when they gathered around the risen Jesus, asking if it was finally time for him to restore the kingdom. They wanted power. And Jesus says, I'm giving you power, but it's not the kind of power you expected. You want power that reduces your vulnerability. I'm giving you power that ratchets your vulnerability way up. You want power that gives you control. I'm giving you the power to give up control. You want power that keeps you safe. I'm giving you the power that will lead to extraordinary risk. You want power to protect your life, and I'm giving you the power to give your life away. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, what does that look like? Chapter 11 is one of the most bewildering chapters of the whole book. It's brimming with Old Testament allusions and imagery. The best way to read it, I think, is as a little parable of the witnessing church. And for people who are desperate to win, it's a hard parable. Why? Because it shows us that the road of witness is none other than the way of the Lamb. It's the way of humble, self-giving, suffering love. It begins with measuring. John is told to measure the temple of God. Now, it's a mistake, I think, to take this as referring to a literal brick-and-mortar temple, either the historical temple destroyed in 70 AD or some temple yet to be built in the future. By John's time, the language of temple was regularly used to describe the church. The temple of God is the people of God. And so this is metaphorical language, which shouldn't surprise us because we're reading the book of Revelation. John is being asked to measure the community of God's people. So what's the measuring about? The measuring here is about protection and preservation. It's an, it's an allusion to Zechariah chapter 2, where Jerusalem is measured, and we're told that the Lord will be to her a wall of fire all around and a glory in her midst. The point is, here the people of God are going to be protected. But notice, the outer court is not measured. We're told that it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And so the temple, the people of God, are protected, but at the same time, they're also vulnerable. On one hand, they're radically secure. God is really with them and for them. On the other hand, they're always exposed to threat as they take God's message to the nations. Now, what about the 42 months? It's not a statistic. It's a symbol. I think the best way to take it is as standing for the whole time that the new temple, the people of God, are exposed to threat from the world. Later in Revelation 12, John uses this number for the length of time that the dragon, Satan, goes after the, the Messiah and his people. And so I think this is referring to the entire time between Jesus' first and second coming. As one writer puts it, the whole time the church is in the world, caught in the crunch of clashing kingdoms. That's what this time period is about. Witness involves vulnerability, and it will always involve vulnerability until Jesus comes again. You know, vulnerability is what the way of withdrawal and the way of lion-like winning both desperately want to avoid. When we, when we withdraw, um, we're avoiding vulnerability by seeking safety. If we're removed and minding our own business, we can't get hurt. When we pursue a strategy of lion-like winning, we hope to avoid vulnerability by gaining control. 
If we're the ones calling the shots, we can't get hurt. But Jesus is calling us to the way of suffering witness. And this means vulnerability. This means we might get hurt. Well, in the next verses, John tells us about two witnesses who will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Has he shifted to a different topic? No, we're still talking about the church and the church's role in the world. The 1,260 days is the same length of time as the 42 months. This again stands for the church's work of witness between his first coming and his return. The two witnesses represent the church. They're wearing sackcloth. It's a sign both of the prophetic nature of their task and a reminder that it must be carried out in humility and in repentance. And when they do move out in humble, repentant, sacrificial love, the result is trouble, big trouble. What happens to the witnesses? They meet extreme opposition and hostility, and then they get killed. And the great city rejoices over their deaths because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Now that sounds extreme. Why would the faithful witnesses be a torment to the world? Because the gospel confronts idolatry and the gospel confronts injustice. The witnesses are holding up an alternate vision of God and the world and the good life and it utterly contradicts all the world's isms and ideologies that we build our lives around. Individualism, relativism, materialism, militarism. Faithfully pointing to Jesus long enough in environments dominated by these powers, do that long enough and you'll find yourself in trouble. That's what happens in this parable. The witnesses are killed and the world rejoices. But this is the way. The witnesses didn't withdraw in passivity. They moved forward in active engagement. But they didn't move out trying to win some kind of political battle as warriors. They weren't trying to defeat Rome. They put on their sackcloth and they went out into the world and they kept on pointing to Jesus. And this is the way. Remember, it's the way because it's God's way. This is the way that is at the heart of the throne room of God. Behold the Lion of Judah, and I looked, and I saw a slain lamb. And this is true power, true wisdom, suffering love that gives itself for the sake of others. Now the Lamb calls his followers on the same path, suffering witness. And look at the result. What happens when we embrace our role not as passive withdrawers, not as lion-like winners, but as suffering witnesses, following the lamb in the way of self-giving love. Well, look at chapter 11, verse 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. In the parable, that's the result of faithful witness. Doesn't that sound wonderful? No, <laughs> probably not on a first hearing. But John is doing something really subtle here. Look, one-tenth of the city fell, 7,000 dead. Now, are those statistics or are they symbols? By now you know what I think. I think they're symbols. What are they symbols of? They're symbols 
of mercy. Remember, when we read Revelation, we're reading the work of one whose mind has been absolutely saturated in the Old Testament scriptures. If these are statistics, it sounds awful. One-tenth of the city fell, 7,000 were killed. But John is actually preaching good news. We just need to know the Old Testament allusions. In Isaiah chapter 6, God saves one-tenth and the rest perish. In Amos chapter 5, God says that the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, one-tenth. And the city that went out a hundred shall have ten left, one-tenth. In both, in both cases, one-tenth are saved while nine-tenths perish. And John is reversing this. Nine-tenths are now saved. Well, what about the 7,000 dead? In the story of Elijah in 1 Kings, you can read about this in chapter 19, only 7,000 people were found to be faithful to God. But now, in Revelation, in this dramatic reversal, all but 7,000 people give glory to God. Do you see what John has done? He's entirely shifted the balance. In the Old Testament, it's a small faithful remnant that is spared while the majority of people refuse to turn from their sin. But here, the overwhelming majority are saved as they respond to God in repentance and faith. See, for John to fear God and to give him glory are the appropriate responses to the gospel. It's a way of saying the vast majority of people turned to the Lamb and they came home. What's the result of faithful witness? Salvation. Salvation belongs to our God, but it comes to the world through forgiven sinners like you and me, who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are willing to go the way of the Lamb. One writer puts it like this, Through the awful turmoil and trouble of the world, God is establishing through Jesus a people who, following the Lamb, are to bear witness to God's kingdom through their own suffering through which the world will be brought to repentance and faith so that ultimately God will be king over all. Family, how will we live in this time of tribulation, in this time of trouble? Will we withdraw? Will we fight? No. Go the way of the lamb. Eat the scroll. Let the good news about Jesus do its transforming work in us. Put on sackcloth, repent of our idolatries and injustices, repent of our complacency and compromise, speak clearly and boldly and humbly about Jesus. Family, this is how the kingdom comes. This is how God works his power in the world, through weakness, through humility, through suffering love, through communities of people gathered around Jesus who are moving toward the low and the least, and the last, and the lost. This is the way. May we have the grace and courage to walk in it in the weeks and months to come. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.